As we're going to see today, God desires to dwell with his people. He desires to enjoy our presence, and he calls us and challenges us to enjoy his presence as well. Uh, several weeks ago, my boys and I had the opportunity of heading up uh, to Huntington Lake, literally the week before the fires hit and kind of destroyed uh, the mountains up there, we went up and uh, we got a tent right off the lake there. And I remember I spent probably about 45 minutes to an hour putting this tent together. And uh, Pastor Nick let us borrow one of his. And, and uh, at first, uh, the boys were kind of helping and then they got kind of other things they wanted to do. And so I'm trying to figure out how to put this tent together. And, and finally, we put it all together, got it all up, set ready to go. And uh, we got to that evening, and we're laying in the tent, and the person next to us basically says, oh man, without a covering on that particular type of tent, uh, there's kind of a likelihood, you know, some frost and things. And so the boys were like, well, there might be bears and frost, and so let's sleep in the, in the car. So we ended up sleeping in the car that night after having already put the tent together. And it kind of reminded me of this passage where these children of Israel were called into the desert, and God is now going to give them instructions, not just for any sort of tent, but he's going to give them instructions on how to build the tabernacle because of the fact that God desires to dwell with his people. Our, our proposition, kind of a, a statement I want you to think about this morning is this. What are you willing to sacrifice in order to experience the presence of God? So let that sink in for a moment. What is it that you are willing to sacrifice in order not, not to have the presence of God, because as New Testament believers, all of us have access to the Spirit of God. All of us have access to the presence of God. What I'm asking is, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to enjoy the presence of God? What are you willing to do to experience the presence of God? What are you willing to do to uh, fully sense the Spirit of God? Uh, guys, I'm going to ask, I've got a little ringing here through the uh, microphones on my side, so I don't know if it's going out there, but if we can just tone those down just a hair, that'd be helpful. We're in Exodus chapter number 25, Exodus chapter number 25. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn there. This is probably the most lengthy portion of Scripture we're going to try to move through uh, in this series in the book of Exodus. We are actually going to go from Exodus 25. Uh, we're going to skip a couple of chapters that we'll get to next week, and we're going to go all the way to Exodus chapter number 34. Um, so what I'd like to do is I want you to zone in because we're going to read for about nine chapters. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to read all nine chapters here in one sitting, uh, but we're going to read a portion of this, and then I'm going to teach through all of these chapters. We're going to skip two chapters and come back to them next week, all right? And we're going to really zone in the part of Exodus that deals with the building of the tabernacle. Why, why is this? Why did God institute the tabernacle for the children of Israel as they're moving through the wilderness? Why? Because God desires to dwell with his people. He desired to dwell with his people in the Old Testament. And can I say for New Testament believers under the new covenant, he continues to desire to dwell with you. He wants you to experience his presence. He wants you to enjoy the very real near presence of God. It was true in the Old Testament and it's just as true today in the 
New Testament. So we're in Exodus chapter number 25. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read down through verse number 9, and then we'll use that as a springboard to move through these nine chapters as we study this subject of the building of the tabernacle uh, for the children of Israel. For those of you who are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read verse number 1 through verse number 9. We'll start in verse number 1 of Exodus chapter number 25. We'll read through verse number 9, and then we'll dive into our Bible study here this morning. The scriptures say in Exodus chapter number 25, verse number 1, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold and silver and bronze Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece, verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Notice verse 9. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. We're going to talk this morning on the subject of the tabernacle, and we're going to be studying three aspects of this Old Testament tabernacle and what it means for us as New Testament believers. Uh, you know, this is like, man, this is the children of Israel. They're building this archaic tent. What was its purpose? Why did it exist? And what is its, what's its application for us as New Testament believers today? That's what we're going to study. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our Bible study this morning. Dear gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for being... A God who is not distant. We thank you that you are a God who didn't just create the world and create us as human beings and then just kind of distanced yourself from us. But God, you are one who who came in the person of Christ to, to dwell with us. You are acquainted with our griefs and our sorrows and you know what it is to experience all that it is to be human. Lord, thank you for being a God who desires to dwell with your people. You desire to uh, allow us to experience you, to sense you, to enjoy you. And I pray as New Testament believers that, that we would take full privilege, that we would lean into this privilege that we have to enjoy you, to sense you, to experience you, because you make yourself available to us. Lord, I pray that what we see in this Old Testament pattern of the tabernacle And Lord, I pray that we would see its applications for us even today that you desire to meet with us, to be with us, for us to enjoy you and experience you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. If you're taking notes, uh, maybe on your phone, I want you to just kind of think through through three aspects, all right, that we're going to look at, three aspects of this Old Testament tabernacle and what it means for us today as New Testament believers. So let's just dive right in. Notice what the Bible says in verse number eight. God says, make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among 
them, all right? So right here, first of all, just to kick this off, notice that statement, that I may dwell among them. It leads us here to our first thought, and that is the purpose of the tabernacle. What was the purpose for God to encourage the children of Israel to build up this really uh, nice tent of sorts? And we're going to dive into what exactly this looked like in a moment. But what was the purpose of it? In the Old Testament, um, believers, those who believed in God Jehovah, they didn't automatically receive the indwelling spirit of God like we do today. All right, in, in the old, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God dwelt around them, but he did not dwell within them. And so God gives and he institutes this tabernacle as a place where the children of Israel could experience the very real manifest presence of God. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, verse 19, under the New Covenant says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. So under the new covenant, in the New Testament, our bodies become this temple. Our bodies are literally this tabernacle. Our bodies are this sanctuary for the indwelling Spirit of God. And how many of you are thankful that you do not have to come to church to experience the manifest presence of God, all right? It's not something special about this place. The Bible says in the New Covenant, you are the temple. You are the sanctuary. You, your body is literally the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. That is how it lies in the New Covenant. But under the Old Covenant, that wasn't the, the way it worked. These people had to go to the tabernacle in order to experience the manifest presence of God. And that leads us to our first thought, the purpose of the tabernacle. We see this right here, that I may dwell among them. God said, you know what? My Shekinah glory, my presence, I, I want my people, I want the children of Israel, the nation of Israel to experience my glory I want them to experience my presence. I want them to be able to enjoy my spirit. And so what we're going to do is we're going to set up a tabernacle. It's a tent of sorts, as we'll see in a moment, where that glory, where my presence will reside. In the New Covenant, James chapter number 4, verse 8, it says this, Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Now, this is not saying that God's presence is not always available. What it's saying is there are moments where we as God's people don't experience God's presence. It's always available to you. Every believer, every Christian always has access to the very real near presence of God, but not every believer is always enjoying it. Not all Christians are always experiencing it. We're not always sensing it. And so what the scriptures is telling us is you can always draw near to the experiential presence of God. You can always draw near to sensing his presence on a deeper level. That is always available to you. And so I want to encourage you with this statement today as we're diving into the purpose of the tabernacle, the purpose of the presence of God. I want to encourage you with this. Refuse to be content with just the knowledge of God insist on experiencing the presence of God. 
I'm going to say this one more time because it's really important that we understand this. It's so easy for believers and Christians to become content with just having a knowledge of God, with having an academic, cerebral understanding of who God is and what he is and kind of aspects of his character. But what we're encouraging us with today is that let's not become content with just having a head knowledge about God, but let's be the type of believers that lean in and insist on experiencing, enjoying, and sensing the real manifest presence of God in and through our lives. Do you understand the difference between the two? Do you know there is a difference between what you know about God in your head and what you're experiencing of God in and through your life? You say, give me some examples. It is possible to know, to know all the scripture verses all about the promises of God and you could quote them you could have had them memorized well, my God will never leave me or forsake me my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory and cost you could go from promise to promise to promise and know academically even memorize and understand all those promises can I say this there's a difference between knowing about the promises of God and having a knowledge-based understanding of them and coming to a place where you are experiencing this God that never leaves you nor forsake you one is academic the other is experiential it's one thing to know that our God answers prayer it's one thing to be able to tell stories about how God answered prayer for your friends or for your parents or how God answers prayer in the scriptures. It's one thing to have an academic, cerebral understanding that God answers prayer. That is a head knowledge. It's an entirely different thing to have look back and say, this is a time where God answered prayer in my life. This is a time where God came through in ways that nobody else could have done and unless the miraculous hand of God came down and did what only he could do, we would have had no chance at moving through this situation. One is academic, one is experiential. And what we're seeing in this passage is God saying, hey, don't simply be content with having an academic, cerebral understanding of who God is in some kind of academic realm. We need to come to a place where that academic, that knowledge leads us to an experience where we are experiencing the promise of God, we are experiencing answered prayer, we are experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, not just knowing about it. And that's really the heart of what we're, we're understanding here, is the tabernacle was going to be this outward symbol to God's people to help them understand that God was more than just this academic thing out there that they were supposed to know about, but God wanted to be experienced. He's a personal God that wants to be enjoyed. He wants to dwell with his people. He wants his people to experience him. Because God is not just a God that gives love. The essence of who God is is love. And he wants his people to experience that love. God is not just a God that offers peace. The Bible tells us He's the Prince of Peace. He's a God who wants us to experience He who is our peace. Do you understand the difference? 
The tabernacle is a symbolic reminder to us as God's people that our God is not content with simply us having an, ex- an academic understanding of it. Our God is a God that needs to be experienced. He wants to be enjoyed. He wants to live in personal relationship with you as an emotional, relational, spiritual human being. But too many churches has, have turned God into some ideological idea. And the Bible and church services become nothing more than just lectures. They become nothing more than just kind of, you know, college classes about religious information. And God's saying, I am not content with simply being an academic ideology to you. I want you to experience me. I want you to experience the promises of God. I want you to experience the fruit of the Spirit and love and joy and peace. He says, I want you to sense these things and enjoy these things. I want a relationship with you. And that is what the tabernacle is trying to help us as his people understand. That is the purpose of the tabernacle. And so for the children of Israel, God gives them this tabernacle to say, I've got something more for you than just what you can stick in your head. I want you to experience something in your heart. I want you to enjoy something in your emotions, in your relationship. I want you to experience the peace and joy and love that not, not just the peace and joy and love I give, but the peace and the joy and love that I am. The purpose of this tabernacle. One theologian said it this way, yes, God is above, but he's just not pushed up there all by himself. Yes, he's beneath, but he's not just pressed down. Yes, he's outside, but he's not excluded. He's inside, but he's not confined to that. God is above all things presiding. He's outside all things embracing. And he's inside all things filling. He's all and in all. The purpose of the tabernacle. Now go to verse number nine. The Bible says this. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, this is where it gets real intense, okay? So we're gonna go from scripture, scripture, scripture. It's gonna get a little academic for a moment, okay? So just kind of bear with me. Because I want you to see, second of all here, it kind of leads us to our next thought we're gonna focus on today, and that is the parts of the tabernacle. The parts of the tabernacle. We really could spend an entire sermon series uh, just in these next few chapters uh, fleshing out all the symbolic meaning for each of these artifacts, each of these furnishings that are found within the tabernacle, but we're going to just do the best we can. So to give you kind of an overview, the guys here put a picture up based on these six chapters of what the tabernacle basically is going to look like. And so what you're going to see is the tabernacle and what we'll see in a moment, it's about 150 feet long. It's 75 feet wide. It has an outer courtyard. And in the front, there was what they called a gate in the scriptures, but it was more of just kind of a a tent opening. And there was an inner court. And then there was what's called the holy and the holy of holies or the holy place and the holy of holies inside the center of the tabernacle. So let's just kind of uh, move through this. So we're going to see, first of all, there's the wall. We're going to talk about that for a second, give you some details on that. Then we're going to see the inside structure. You'll see the holy place. And then in the holy place, there's this place 
uh, for the priests called the Holy of Holies, all right? And so that's the structure, and then we'll see the furnishings. There's several pieces of furniture that God was very specific on how and what they were supposed to be used. So let's start with the wall. So you'll see the wall on the outside, and you'll see the pillars that were there. Uh, we see this in chapters number 27, verses 9 through 19. In chapters number 27, if you skip over there, uh, verses number 9 through 19, God is going to give very specific instructions on what this wall was supposed to be like, be like in the courtyard that it would create. 150 feet long, there was 20 posts that would go along, and God was very particular about what the posts were to be made out of and how they were to be created. Uh, this was a 75 feet wide uh, as far as the outer courtyard, and then each of these walls would have been 7.5 feet high. So think roughly the size of a doorway, all right? So a little bit taller than a doorway would be how tall this wall. We call it a wall, but it wasn't made of bricks. It was made of really like white tent fabric is what this would have been made out of. Uh, the white linens with silver hooks and silver bars, according to chapter number 27, verse number 11. And the gate or the front opening would have been made of a uh, purple type of linens, and that would open up and allow the people to move into that courtyard. That was the wall. Uh, in chapters number 26, you'll see about this particular structure. The structure that made up the holy place and the holies of holies, uh, this would have been a gold-covered wood. So they made these planks of wood, and they covered these wood with gold. Once the wood was framed up, then they would have a fabric that would go over it, and it made it appear to be an inter-tent-like structure. Uh, in chapters number 36, and we're not going to read through the entire chapter 36, but in chapter number 36, God is very particular about how they were to construct this tabernacle. Not only is he particular about, you know, uh, how, the size of it, not only is he particular about who is to build it, he literally gives names of people and he says, these are the people that I want to have build it. And he talks about the construction workers in chapters number 31, and every detail of his tabernacle tabernacle gives very specific instructions. So we see the wall around the tabernacle. We see the structure within this tabernacle. And then thirdly, I want you to see the furniture, the furnishings within the tabernacle. Uh, chapters number 27 through verses 1 through 8 talks about this first altar. All right. Uh, this is the sacrificial altar. Uh, this particular altar would have been seven and a half feet wide. It would have been seven and a half feet long, and uh, we see that it would have been a four and a half feet high. And this is where the sacrifices would have been made. In the Old Testament, they would literally sacrifice an animal, and that was to be a symbolic picture of the sacrifice that the Son of God would make on our behalf to cleanse us from our sins. And so Old Testament believers, they would partake in this ritual to remind them by faith of the sacrifice that was to come in the person of Jesus. We as New Testament believers, we look back at the sacrifice in faith, they looked forward to the sacrifice and faith, but both involved a spirit of faith, all right? It was faith in both regards that ultimately saved them. So we see this altar that was to be a reminder, it was to be a picture, it was to be a symbol of the sacrifice that was made in order to secure our salvation. Next would be what was called the, the bronze basin, all right? It was a basin of sorts where the priests would wash their hands, and it was a symbol of, of just how, the how there need to be cleanliness and holiness as you enter into that holy place. And so that was this basin. It was three feet long. I'm sorry, uh, this particular one uh, in chapters number 30, verse 17 through 21, talk about the specifics. What's interesting 
is in chapters number 38, verse 8, um, in order to make this bronze basin, the materials that they used according to chapter 38, verse 8, was um, the women's mirrors. So the women, the children of Israel, the women, uh, they didn't have mirrors like we do today. They would take a piece of brass and they would shine it up real good and that's what they would use to make these mirrors. And, th and that's like, you know, today we have normal mirrors. That's what they would use for their mirrors. And God calls these ladies to literally to give as an offering all of their mirrors, their brass mirrors, in order to make this, and, and there's a symbolic element to this, that the reality is there are times where God is going to call us to give up the thing that would bring glory our, to ourselves in order so that we can bring glory to God. And that's what we see being played out here, that it's ultimately not about our image. It, it's not ultimately about your image or my image, but ultimately we are to reflect God his glory and so we see this bronze basin uh, next as you enter into that holy place now you would be inside you're no longer in the courtyard uh, the priests could move into that holy place and there were three pieces of furniture within the holy place uh, we see this played out in uh, chapters number 25 23 through 30 it talks about the table of showbread and uh, this table would have been three feet long. It would have been 18 inches wide and 18 inches high, uh, according to chapters number 25, 23 through verse 30. And, and this is where the table of showbread would be. Across from it stood the lampstand. Uh, some of you might be familiar with what you know, the, the Jews call a menorah that would have this look. It would have been a candlestick with uh, just several candles coming from it. And of course, in chapters number 27, verses 20 through 21, speaks of the specific type of oil that was to be used in this menorah or in this lampstand. As you move further into the holy place, there would be a second altar. So the one altar is on the outer courtyard. The second altar is in the holy place. This was not an altar that they would burn a sacrifice upon. This was an incense altar. And so in chapters number 30, verses 1 through 10 speaks of this. Also in verses 34 through 38 gives some very specific requirements about the types of things that could be burnt on this altar. There was three specific requirements on what could and could not be used. In fact, the incense that was used in the holy place could not be used anywhere else. It was reserved specifically for the tabernacle. It was reserved specifically for that holy place. And then you got into the main sanctuary right in the center, what was called the holies of holies and that is where the ark of the covenant was 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 to be held and in chapters number 37 once you get all the way to chapters number 37 verses 1 through 9 uh, God literally talks about how the, this was going to be created and how this was going to be made and so I know we're kind of cranking through this because all of these chapters have to do with the creation of the structure the creation of the wall creation of the structure creation of the furnishings how the furnishings were to be made what specific location these were supposed to be put in and then we come to the third section I'm sure say the fourth section and that's the priests themselves. Uh, so the priests there were the ruling body over the tabernacle. They were the ones in charge of keeping the tabernacle and the sacrifices. And in chapters number 28, we see the garments that these priests were to wear. And all of it was symbolic. All of it had meaning as to why they would wear the ephod or the 
cloak that they were supposed to wear, the breastplate, the robe, the turban, all of it was very specific, very specific materials that had very specific reasons on why God wanted these things a certain way. And so the, the garments, and then in chapters number 39, God literally has specific instructions on how they were to make those particular garments. So we went all the way from chapters number 25 to chapters number 39 just talking about what is the tabernacle, what are the elements of it, what goes into it. Now here's what Revelation chapter number 21 verse 3 says this, behold the tabernacle of God is with men. Notice this, this is New Testament now. The tabernacle of God is now with men. It used to be in the desert. It used to be something that could be torn down and built back up when they would make a camp. And according to the New Testament, he says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is now with men, and he will dwell with them. Literally, he shall tabernacle within them. This is huge. You see, the people of God used to have to go to a place to experience God's presence. They used to have to go to a tabernacle. They used to have to go to a sanctuary. And in some degree, sometimes we get this idea that we have to go to church to experience the presence of God. We do not go to church to experience the presence of God. We go to a church to experience a body of believers. And there's something special that happens when a lot of individuals who are all filled with the Spirit of God come together. There is a spiritual synergy that exists within the local church context. But we are not coming here to experience God. You can experience God in the woods. You can experience God on your way to work. You can experience God in your home. You are not limited to experiencing God in a church house. We come to church to experience this combined synergy of God's Spirit. And it's something God calls us to do. He says it will help. It will encourage your spiritual walk. It will enrich your spiritual life. Local church attendance is an important part of what it means to mature. God says you'll mature as you come in local gathering. But I want to remind you of this. God's presence is not limited to 4589 North Marty. Praise God. This is not a sanctuary. This is not a tabernacle. In fact, there are some who even struggle to call these buildings churches. You say, why? Because the church is not a building. You say, what is it? It's, 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 a, it's a gathering place for the church. This warehouse is not the church. It's where the church gathers. It's where the Fresno church gathers. It's, it's just a normal old building. In fact, if we moved out, they'd probably put tractors and wood and they'd turn this into an old warehouse and they'd start building stuff in here. And it would be no less holy or more holy than it is in this moment. This is just the gathering place of the church for this particular season. Why? Because the Bible says in Revelation 21, behold, the tabernacle of God is now with men. Everything we just described under the New Testament, this is cool, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil to the Holy of Holies was rent, and it was a symbolic reminder of the fact that now we all have access to the throne room of God. That's why the Bible tells us, come boldly. No longer is it a priest that has to come on your behalf, because Jesus Christ now is your high priest, and now you have access to the very throne room of God because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. You don't need someone else to help you experience the manifest presence of God. You have everything you need in the person of Jesus Christ to experience his promises, to experience answered prayer, and to experience the fruit of the Spirit. With Christ in you, you have all that you need 
to experience and enjoy the very real near presence of God. A.W. Tozier said it this way. He said, nothing in this world measures up to the single pleasure of experiencing the presence of God. If that statement doesn't resonate with you, I would simply say that you've not fully experienced the presence of God. If you're sitting here and you're like, oh, I don't, you know, well, I, th I think there are some other experiences that, you know, I I'm just saying if, if that statement doesn't ring true, if it doesn't resonate deeply, it might be that there's still some areas where you can experience God's presence more deeply more profoundly. Maybe you could experience answered prayer in ways you haven't experienced before and experience the promises of God in ways you've never experienced before and experience the fruit of the Spirit, Spirit in more profound and deep ways because when you truly experience God, that will resonate. Nothing in this world measures up to the single pleasure of experiencing the manifest presence of God. So we just see the purpose of the tabernacle. We see the parts of the tabernacle. Uh, notice verse number two in chapter number 25. This will lead us to our last point and we'll be wrapping this Bible study up. Notice what it says in verse number two. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are able to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. This leads us to our final thought we're going to focus on today from our scripture passage, and that is this. Not only do we see here the purpose of the tabernacle, not only do we see the parts of the tabernacle, I want you to see lastly the provision for the tabernacle, the, provi the provision for it. God tells his people, take up an offering. And I, I'm, he says, I'm asking God's people to sacrifice. He says gold, silver, bronze, the monetary resources that they have. God says, I want you to sacrifice that. I want you to give that as an offering, which leads us to the provision for the tabernacle. I want you to notice two aspects of this provision. Notice number one, the attitude in their giving. We're going to see their attitude. What was their spirit? What was their attitude as they gave of their gold and their silver and their bronze? Let's just read through it. Notice chapter number 35 for a moment. Skip over to chapter number 35. I want you to see this for yourselves. Exodus chapter number 35, as we've just been moving through all of these passages that kind of deal uh, with the tabernacle themselves. 35, chapter number 5, notice what it says. It says here in verse 5, From what you have taken offering for the Lord, Everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze. So basically, he starts with his offering. Skip down to verse number 21 now. He's going to continue this thought. He says, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting, for all of its service, and for the sacred garments. Go verse 22. And all who are willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold, jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave of offering unto the Lord. Verse number 29, we continue to see this spirit that they had. Verse number 29, all the Israelites, men and women who were willing, brought to the Lord free will offerings for the Lord, for all of the work of the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Now, this is different than the tithe that was talking about earlier. The tithe was kind of this mandatory thing. God said 10%, that's what the tithe means. An offering was above and beyond this tithe. This was to be a free will offering. There was nobody who was being mandated to give of this. And this is where we see, this is where we get this idea that, you know what, sometimes God calls us to give it above and beyond what we normally give in a spirit of sacrifice. 
to give above and beyond what we would normally give in order to serve and in order to help in order to enrich and that's what we see in this provision for the tabernacle this was their attitude just to give it was beyond this tithe they had already given a tithe they had already given a baseline in order for this to move forward and these were people who were giving above and beyond that you say why they, they were doing this to make it possible for others to experience the presence of God and I just want to encourage us in this regards as well. When we give, we, we saw one of our missionaries a moment ago, one of our missionaries to Thailand. We have missionaries all across the globe. And when we give, we have an opportunity to make it possible for other people to enjoy and experience and sense the very real, near presence of God. This is why we give. This is why we sacrifice. One of the reasons we give and we sacrifice, it has the same purpose, is so we can make it possible for others. Yes, do others have the potential of experiencing? Yes, but we make it possible for them to experience and enjoy it and sense it that much more easily. So we see the attitude in their giving. If you go to chapter number 36, we're going to see the abundance in their giving. Notice chapter number 36, verses 5 through 7. The Bible says in chapter number 36, verse 5, let's see if I can find it here, verse number 5, the people, and, and they said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work of the Lord commanded to be done, verse 6, then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp, no man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary, and so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had done was more than enough to do all the work, so literally, I want you to see what's happening here, basically there comes this point and Moses has to stand up and said, you guys are giving too much money. We have way more than we, like, to everything that we need to do in order to accomplish what God's told us to accomplish, everybody is, has such a heart of generosity. Everybody is giving so lavishly. Moses has to stand up and say, stop. <laughs> There's too much. I know Pastor Nick several years ago gave an illustration about what would happen if those who claim to be Christians just, just tithed. Like not, not even getting involved in offerings, but just baseline giving. It was amazing all of the things that could be done in our world. I mean, hunger could be just totally eliminated. Missionaries fully funded and supported. The schools that could be started, the orphanages. Not by people doing excessive above and beyond. Not even giving what we're supposed to give to the government for our taxes. Like just giving a basic, what kind of God says, kind of like a baseline, someplace to start the profound impact that could be made. And yet these people hadn't just given that. These people were giving so far beyond. Moses has to stand up and say, we just don't need it. It's more than we could ever possibly use. And so we see not only the attitude in their giving, but we see the abundance in their giving. Why? They were giving to make it possible for others to experience the presence of God. And that's why we give. We give so people in Northwest Fresno could experience the very real presence of God. We give so those who are serving on mission fields and those who are planting churches can help them in their communities and in their countries help people in those areas experience the very real near presence of God. Second Corinthians chapter number nine, verse six says this, but this I say, all right, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 
Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or out of compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. We see this giving, this generosity thing played out in the Old Testament. We see it played out in the New Testament. And I want to encourage us as a church family. I know we're going through some difficult times in regards to COVID. And I know coming through the summer months, you know, we're on traveling and it's easy to get out of the habit of generous giving. But I want to encourage you with this. Man, let's be a people that says, you know what? Because God's heart is connected to those who are generously giving. We need to be marked as a people who are giving generously, who make this thing of giving generously a priority and a habit in our regular lives. And just to make this really practical, I know we talk about this a lot, but there really are three ways in which we can give around here on a practical level. Uh, now with COVID and everything that's going on, we've tried to try to make it a little bit easier, but we have what's called online giving. If you just go to fresnochurch.com give, right there, there will be a page that pops up and you can put in your information and it's online giving. Once you have logged in, It'll always pop up as long as you keep that page open and you just can put in. It's very simple, fresnochurch.com slash give. You can even set it up, and I would encourage you, many of you to do this, to set it up reoccurring. If you get paid on a reoccurring basis, then I want to encourage you just to set this up on a reoccurring basis because you know what? There'll be weeks where you get sick. You'll still get paid, but this is a way in order for that giving to continue. Why? So people can experience the very real presence of God. There are times where we're on vacation and we don't mean to miss out on giving, but man, we get some paid vacation and we're going to get paid and that's going to get directly deposited into our account because we're not in church for a week or two. Those couple weeks go by and all of a sudden we didn't give. And it's not that we don't mean to. It's not that we don't want to. It's just, it's something that's difficult to do. And so I encourage our church family to be involved in reoccurring giving, online giving. Here's a second way. It's called text giving. Text giving is very simple because once you text the number to Fresno Church, the way it works is once it's set up, there's a link that gets sent to your text message. It's different than online giving. Once you set up that text and you put in your information, literally all you have to do anytime you want to give is just put the number in that text message here going forward. And you can literally put in $25. Just put the number in missionaries for the last nine months. There's not one missionary that did not get the money that we committed to them before we ever knew any of this was going on. 
We not only support missionaries across the ocean, we also support church planners here in the United States. We have several church planners that we're helping to get their churches started. Remember, some of you remember when Akeem was here uh, not too long ago. My brother Micaiah was here a few weeks ago. We helped to get that church launched. There's a lot of church planters that we help here in the States. We also help local nonprofits. When you give through this local church, it allows you to give to the Salvation Army. You're giving to the Pregnancy Crisis Center. You're giving to the Salvation Army because on a regular basis, those funds are getting funneled to those places. So you're giving nationally, you're giving globally, you're giving locally as you give through this local church. And it's a great way to allow the ministry to be able to move forward as well as make an impact around the world. And those are some practical ways to do it. I'll end with this, but generosity doesn't start with how much you have. Generosity starts by realizing how much you've been given. If you look at, oh, this is what I have left, and give that, you know, depending on how we manage our finances, that, that could be here or there or everywhere. But when we look and say, you know what, I have been given so much. Look at the salvation I've been given. Look at all the blessings in Christ that I have been given. And we realize what we've been giving. Then all of a sudden, we, we're at a heart, a heart posture that's able to give back. And I want to encourage this church family to be marked by a heart of radical financial generosity. And if this is something in this season because of COVID and everything that's kind of mixed up and we're not passing offering plates around anymore and it's maybe something that's not become a habit, I want you to really prayerfully consider leaning into figuring out maybe a new way to make this a habit, whether it's through online reoccurring giving, um, because in this season, a lot has gotten shaken up. And one of the things that are getting shaken up is how our finances are taken care of here. People are just, there's not as many people in the building anymore. That's having an effect. There's not as many people knowing how to do online giving. That's having an effect. There's not people who know how to do text to give. Those things have an effect. And so they hit those things. And I just want to say as a church family, while God is going to provide all of our needs, he provides through us. And so as we go through this season, if God has continued to allow you to have a job like you did before, and he's continued to bless you and take care of you like he did before, can I encourage you uh, to just continue to make radical generosity a part of your spiritual formation. And we're trying to make it as easy as possible to do that. I remember when we were getting into this building, it was a huge monumental project. Because we are not connected with any formal denomination, we literally had, not, we did not have one penny provided to us. We had no financing. We had absolutely zero in the ways of outside organizations helping us move into this. And it was hundreds of thousands of dollars that it was gonna take for us to move into this. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I remember as we kind of shared that vision at that little chapel down on Clinton Boulevard and said, These were, we, we weren't rich people there wasn't people who had tons of money it was just like this is where God's leading us this is what we believe God wants us to do I remember one family came to me and they began to pray about what God would have them to do and they came to me and said you know what? we feel like what God wants us to do is to downsize we have a very large home we live in we don't need a large home we like it it's nice we enjoy it but it's not a need and they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go, we're going to sell our home, we're going to downsize to a smaller home, and then the difference in our mortgage payment each month, we're going to give so this building can be built. You know, one of the reasons we get to enjoy the property and the reason you get to enjoy the property is because there are families that had that type of heart of sacrificial generosity as we were moving through this process. Literally, without that type of generosity and people like them, this wouldn't even exist. 
And there were people who were giving. I remember literally wedding rings being put into offering plates. I remember people downsizing houses, selling vehicles. Why? So there could be a place where we could come and experience the presence of God together locally as a people. And can I, I just want to call us back to that spirit of radical generosity. And I know, I know we go through different seasons and what it is going to be for you might be different than what it is for somebody else. But if you're at a place and, and basically God gets the same thing that Chipotle gets each week or Starbucks gets each week, I, I want to just encourage you to maybe reevaluate your priorities. Man, if your car payment gets more than the Lord gets, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I'm just asking you, man, is that, is that really what's, is, is that truly where your values are? If your values are truly in that vehicle and your values truly are Starbucks more than God and his local assembly, then that's great. But if you believe and you're saying that your priorities are the Lord and his mission is king, then let's, let's ask yourself, do, do our financial priorities match what we say our values are? That's all I'm asking. Just, I'm just asking that. I'm not telling you what you should or should not do. I'm just saying let's be intentional about thinking through that on a personal basis. Why? Why, why, why the giving? Why the provision? Here's why. So we and those around us can enjoy the experiential presence of God. So here's the takeaway and we're done. Can I encourage you to sacrifice, much like the children of Israel did, in order to experience this tabernacle. There was a huge party celebration that they had once this thing got built and they rejoiced because man, the Shekinah glory of God was there and they got to experience the presence of God. And they gave so they could experience it. We give because we've experienced it. And what a blessing we have to be able to enjoy the very real near presence of God. And so we see the purpose for this tabernacle. We see the parts of these tabernacles and we saw the provision of these tabernacles, that Lord, that, oh, that we would pray the Lord would give us that heart afresh and anew to experience and enjoy and sense the very real near presence of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would be a people, Lord, who would be willing to sacrifice so others could experience the promises of God. They could also experience answered prayer and the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, that we would give so others, Lord, could have and experience these things for themselves. Lord, as we sing, I pray that our singing would be an offering of praise as well. That we would offer our, our hearts, that we would offer our finances, that we would offer our talents, that we would offer our time and our energy as a sacrifice, a way of saying thank you to all that you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.